0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 201 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Are you basking in the glory of last week's book
1: launch? Uh, Yes, I am. There is a sort of a little bit of basking going on. I'm I'm more just kind of recovering, though, I think, (laughs) really. (laughs) There's a certain amount of – there's so much – you don't even realise till it's all over just how much kind of tension is involved in, in something like that. And I had a book launch on the weekend, which was fantastic. And, um, shout out to those people. Well, hi there to Jazzy who came down from Wollongong to come to the launch. Mm -hmm. Um, I had some, some small people come along, which was brilliant, and want, you know wanting to talk to me. And um, there was a little girl there called Alia who uh, told me that I'd inspired her to become a writer. So I was uh, reached off by that. Yeah. So it was, it was very fun. So yeah. No, it's um. It's, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of just in that moment of, oh, well, that's all over. What am I going to do next?
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I mean, I, during the week, my partner was in Melbourne and he sent me a photo at Melbourne Airport. Now, it's I reckon it's great to be in airport bookshops because it is sort of a captive audience. I Almost, I reckon, eight times out of ten, I will buy a book at the airport. Mm. So, and – I, so I think it's great to be in airport bookshops so you're in airport bookshops but I will admit that during the week I, I there were moments of oh my god this is so exciting and oh my god this is so frustrating because I cruised around a number of bookshops and what was frustrate, what was great was when they were front and center and what was great but frustrating was when I'd say oh do you have um do you have the book of secrets and they'd say oh we've already sold out so
1: that's kind of good Yoo-hoo, and bad, right? It's good like, and bad, yeah, it yeah. is. It really is because, you know, um, we. Uh, I know that when we talked about it uh, last week we were um – uh, uh, directing people towards Booktopia and uh, they sold out on the first day. So um, it's been out of stock and you can still order it, but you kind of have to wait a bit longer to receive it. And so it is it is exciting because you kind of think, yay, but then you think, oh, but wait, <laughs> mm. where are they? So That's they're out right. there. They're definitely out there. You That's
0: right. But check anyway because you them. never know You never know when they do come in stock because I did look up Booktopia a few days ago. Into it, and they were back in stock, but then they were out of stock again because obviously it's flying off the shelves.
1: Well, others have them. Dimmick's has them. Abby's has them. There's, yes. you know, there's lots of places you can get them online, and of course your local um, bookstore, Dimmick's or otherwise uh, independent bookstore definitely has them, or you can order them in through them. So they're definitely out there. And I would just like to say thank you to everyone who has made them fly off the shelves because mm. uh, it's it is a pretty amazing feeling to watch them go. <laughs> <laughs> Woohoo! Woohoo! Yeah, exactly.
0: All right. So you're recovering. Anything else apart from recovering?
1: Um. No, I think that's pretty much it at the moment. I think recovering is pretty much all I'll be doing for a minute. But what about you? Yes. What are you up to? Have you been like painting? Berg.
0: I have been painting and it's been fun uh, and just getting through my to-do list. I was looking at my email um list this morning and there were like 512 emails and I'm like oh my god it's it feels so overwhelming and so daunting 512
1: new ones
0: yeah new ones
1: wow what since since Friday
0: well I checked I I dealt with several over the weekend but not all so I would say I dealt with maybe 25 to 30 percent on the weekend so these are the remaining ones yeah it's ridiculous that's
1: that's a lot of emails well like i I get i I get maybe i don't know 50 to 100 a day and that's enough for me
0: Yeah. it's does it's my head in. <laughs> it's doing my head in. So if I owe you an email, I'm sorry. It's coming. It's coming. Now, we just want to give a final shout out to people, to all of our listeners. Firstly, to say thank you if you've filled in our survey. survey. And if you haven't, we would love for you to fill in our survey because we would love to know what you like more of and what you're not so into with this podcast so we can keep bringing you another two- 200 episodes that are hopefully as um, interesting uh, and and informative as the first 200. So all you need to do is go to writerscentre.com.au slash podcast survey and uh, it doesn't take long at all to complete and at the end to thank you for your time we're going to give you a $20 voucher to use on courses at the Australian Writers Centre so writerscentre.com.au slash podcast survey now let's move on to the world of writing and publishing this week shall we
1: let's what a great idea
0: I saw this great link and I went, "Oh my goodness, it's written by Alison. <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually on a blog called Family Focus blog, and it's the the post is called Story Writing for Kids: How to Write a Great Story. And it's been shared like a billion times, <laughs> which is fantastic. That's now very tell us what tell us the gist of this post and why you decided to write it.
1: Okay, so I wrote the post as part of. You might remember we've been discussing uh, over the last few months how I've been working on different um, different guest posts and things as part of the rollout of the Mapmaker Chronicles in the US. Um, So one of the things that I can do as an author, obviously, to help spread the word about my own books, is to um, uh, to contact. Uh, blogs, um, and some of them have come through recommendations of other bloggers that I know, and some have just been blogs that have been on my radar for a while. Um, so I contact them and I and I pitch a post to them, and I say, you know, I'm this is what I'm doing. I'm a middle grade author. My book is coming out, you know, on this date. You know, can I write a post for your blog to? Um, to kind of, you know, as useful content for your blog, but also to draw attention to my books. Um, And so I contacted uh, Scarlett at Family Focus, and she has this terrific family blog. It's all about parenting and, you know, family food and family crafts and activities and all that sort of stuff. And I said, look, you know, school's going back in the U.S. at the start of September. How about I write a post for your blog about, you know, great tips for kids on how to write a great story, because I know lots of parents, you know, trying to encourage their kids to write, trying to encourage creativity. How do you do it? Um, So this post is actually, uh, it's based on a workshop that I do when I go out and do author talks for schools. I do a a little workshop called um, Unlocking the Story Code. 10 Keys to a Great Story. And it's obviously based on the Adaban cipher. It's based on the Book of Secrets. So what I try to do when I go and do my workshops is theme them to one of my books so that I can use it as an example as we go through. And you know, it kind of makes sense. It brings it all together for the kids. Um, And of course, half the point of going to do workshops in schools is to promote your books. So it brings it together in a meaningful way. Um, and, and I give out a little bookmark or a little uh, business card or something that they can take home and show their mums. Um, and so this particular thing is basically just, it's a little bit of a guide for kids who are trying to um, get the hang of writing. So I'm usually talking to kids between sort of grades five and seven, usually. Um, and it's just 10 steps, uh, some basics on how to put a story together. And it uh, it's, it, it's one of those things I think when you write this kind of stuff for kids, it really clarifies. Um, for me also um, some of the some of the sort of basics of story writing so I think it's actually a really useful post as well for um, for beginner writers because it, it's you know it talks about where yes. ideas come from it talks about the three the three p's um, which are great uh, person place problem these are the starting points of a story you know you either start with a person you start with a place or you start with a problem and then you sort of extrapolate your story from there um, then we talk a little bit about creating a a character. We talk about the fact that your character has to have a goal, that if your character doesn't want something, you don't have a story. So we talk about that. Then I have a little story formula that I use that um, it helps kids, you know, it's like basically person. So character plus goal plus problem equals story. So you know, your your person, your character you have to have a character your character has to have a goal and there's got to be something standing between your character and their goal, or you don't have a story. Um, so we talk about that. Um, We talk about, you know, the importance of having a plan. It's really important for little kids uh, in particular to have an idea of where their story is going. I know, you know, I mean, we've talked before about how I don't necessarily write that way myself, although I do more now that I have to do series. Um, But if you're starting out as a writer, and I really firmly do believe this, if you're starting out as a writer, and I know Kate Forsyth talks about this a lot, um... You you do need a little bit of a guide as to where your story is going to end up, or you will just keep writing forever, and then you get stuck yeah. in the middle and you never get anywhere. So, um, and it's really important for for young kids because. They, they will just kind of uh, – most kids, the biggest problem they have is actually finishing a story. They'll write and write and write and they'll, they'll be like, I'm only halfway through and I've already used up five pages, you know, and it's, it's kind of like it all gets too much and they walk away. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we talk about different things, but the last one is always editing. And I always talk about editing when I go to workshops and I can see the teachers, you know, cheering at the back of the room when I bring it up um, uh, because, you know, kids hate editing. I mean, I don't like editing much either. But the fact is, it's really important part of it, um, and you know, for them to go back over their story, even just once, even just to read it over and make sure they haven't missed any words out, um, mm. you know, is great a great habit for them to get into. So, um, but yeah, like you know, it's it's a just a uh, you know, little dot point thing. But I think there's a lot of very simple but very useful information in it, and I think that um, yes. you know, I hope people find it useful.
0: Yeah, and if you're a parent now, I, I think that this is really useful. I think it's great. Now, when you do those workshops in schools, what age are they usually?
1: Well, as I said, I, my sweet spot for workshops is sort of grades five to seven. That's where I—that's I, I, where I like to. Uh, that's yeah, that's where I like to go because they're they're kind of developed enough with their story writing and their reading to be able to you know follow what you. are what you're going on about, but they're not sort of, not sort of so cool that they're not listening to you anymore, which is, you know, what often happens. And also that's where my books are aimed. So it kind of makes sense for me to be talking to the age group at which my books are aimed. Having said that, I do also do my workshops shops down to like grade three. Um, I have one called uh, find your writing superpower. Um, Mm. And the grade threes love that because I, you know, I I tend to simplify the content a little, but the basic premises of the, of the actual store of the actual workshop you know that's all about you know finding your strength in writing and and using that to give you confidence to then you know try other things try different things
0: have you ever been in a situation where you've read some of the stuff
1: they've produced and just gone oh my god like that's just way beyond your years Oh, there are kids out there that are doing amazing things. Like there's always one kid in every class who's written a novel and, you know, half the time they bring it along to show it to you and you're sort of reading it just going, wow, this is, you know, pretty amazing. Um, Mm. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's – and, of course, you go to the schools where um, they'll have the the gifted and talented group or the OC group or something and those kids are very, you know, they're way beyond their years with – with everything, with their vocab, with their um, comprehension, just the conversations that you're having with them are um, are much more than you would expect. But I will say that I, I think that the, the thing that I always find fantastic about them is that we always do an exercise. I like to do an interactive exercise in every workshop because otherwise they're just sitting there looking at you. Mm. Um, so we create a character or we create a storyline or something like that. And um, it, I just, I love it so much because they have the most um, amazing imaginations. You know, I'll put yeah. up, I have this one picture of a character that I use, you know, in the story code Uh, workshop and I take it to every school and I put the same picture up every time and every single time you know it's a completely different story every single time and I find it really um, interesting you know and they'll often start out with you know because he's sitting on a bench I'm like what's he waiting for he's lost his iPhone so they'll often start at something like that but by the Mm. end of it you know, he's wanting to be on the Olympic bobsledding team, but you can only be on it if your name's Bob and his name's not Bob and he's on his way down to the birth, deaths and marriages to change his name for, to Bob so he can be in the sled team. And Yeah, it's, it's great. They just, yeah, and they feed off each other and it just gets crazier and crazier. It's really fun, really fun. Sounds like fun. Yeah. All right, let's move on to something
0: quite different and that is a post on Jane Friedman's blog, which is social media for authors, the mm-hmm. toughest topic to advise on. Now, I thought that that was interesting that she calls it the toughest topic to advise on. Um, and, it's, it, and I think that's so true because one of the things she says and that I totally agree with or, or is certainly from my experience as well is that if you get a bunch of writers together, a bunch of authors together, you will have – in that group, such different levels of understanding of social media and Mm -hmm. very different attitudes. Some people love it, think it's the best thing out and use it really effectively. Others think it's the devil. They Uh think that social media is Satan. They Uh hate it so much they're going to do – in fact, they're going to do everything the opposite to social media uh, just as an act of rebellion almost. So it is – Tough (laughs) Uh. because you will never really change those people's minds and you can give every strategy under the book to them and even if they do it, they're going to be doing it unwillingly and if you do it unwillingly, you're not going to be doing it well,
1: right? That's Um, right. I think yes. if you feel – I think if you honestly feel like that about it and you've tried a few different platforms and you haven't found anything that you think is actually, um, you know, that you, you enjoy or you're finding effective or anything, just don't do it. I honestly think – it like you're better off not doing it than sort of – Treating it like it's the devil, and because you can see it, I, you know, I can always tell yes. when I, I visit I an author Where's page it? or whatever. I can tell if they're there because someone told them they had to be. Yes, always. Yep. And um, For sure. I think that Me it's um, it's not that that's not effective either. But I do think if you're going to do that, then you need to think. And, and I'm, I'm and I'm saying this to you in the sense of you know the nicest, gentlest auntie that you've ever met guidance wise because I'm telling you that my book's been out for a week now and uh, you know I had a very 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 busy week online last week because uh because uh, you know I have a platform and things like that and I can tell you that if I didn't have my own space and if I didn't have my own sort of channels to talk to people the the sort of that big um push around the book would pretty much stop right now yeah like it's it's, this is the way that I can keep the conversation going about my book. This is the way, like if I'm on Facebook or, and it's not like I'm going to be sharing, you know, every post that I'm going to put up for the next five years is going to be about the book of secrets. But, um, it gives me the opportunity to, to do that. Um, because otherwise it, it honestly, because this week there'll be another book out, it'll be someone else's book comes out this week and there'll be a hullabaloo and then, you know, everyone moves on again. So the only way that you can continue a conversation about your own work is to have the space to do it. So if you're not going to do, you know, social media or whatever, what are you going to do? How are you going to actually keep that conversation alive? Are you going to organize yourself a series of talks in bookshops? Because, you know, that's a, that can be a very effective thing to do as well. Uh, what are you going to do? Because you will otherwise be sitting here at home like I am today Thinking to yourself, okay, because there's a a deafening silence that happens in a funny sort of a way. Your book goes Mm. out there and then you just got to wait to see what happens next. You know, how's it going? Are there reviews? What's going on? And if there are reviews, how will you share them without social media? How will you let people know that the book's being reviewed well or whatever? You know, it's Mm. – It's. I think it's the most valuable thing that I can. Because, okay, so to to give you an example, when my two non-fiction books came out, so credit card stress busters and the career mums one when credit card stress busters came out I don't really just started my blog I had a relatively small sort of uh, social media following um, and like I got a bit of press around that one because it was a topical thing and nonfiction is often easier to get press around but I wrote a lot of articles for newspapers yep. different things um, which is all great and that all goes out into the ether and there's no response beyond that and so you're kind of sitting here in silence just thinking what can I do? What can I do? Are people buying the book? How will I ever know if they're buying the book? What happens next? You know, um, mm. and if you fast forward, you know, nine years or eight years or whatever it is, um, you know, at least I know, um, I know that I'm doing everything I can to mm. get my books out there, basically. Absolutely. Um, but for me, the thing that Jane said that's really important in this article, uh, which is on janefriedman.com, is this, social media can't be treated as a static thing. You can't just lo- learn a formula and you're done. It's in flux and there's always more to learn. And I think that that's one of the things that's great about it as well, because mm. things do change. And while, you know, you might hate Twitter or you might hate Facebook or whatever, but you know then if you kind of like just keep an eye on what's happening in social media, you find that... Well, well, actually people have kind of migrating a bit to Instagram. Do I mm. like that better? Is that something that I can do better? And so you basically, like if you keep an eye on what's going on, you might actually find that there is, don't get fixed ideas about what social media is because there's always going to be some other new thing and that new thing might be your thing. So it's um, it's it's important just to, just to kind of not be too inflexible about it, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, And I also, it's a danger sometimes when people say, I'm just going to pay someone to do my Instagram. I'm going to pay someone to do my social media, especially if that someone is not any anything like that person. Mm-hmm. For example, um, uh, I met somebody the other day and it became so clear to me that she was paying – like, she's probably – over sixty, and um, it was became so clear to me that she was paying a millennial to do her Instagram because suddenly she was responding to my Instagram post with fist pumps. <gasps> <laughs> and, okay. And and I said, <laughs> and I was like, "That's so not you." Because and that don't get me wrong, there are people over sixty who use emojis perfectly well, um, mm. but it wasn't this person. You know what I mean?
1: Uh, uh. So,
0: yeah, ju- just be careful. If you think you can outsource your social media, um, first of all, ask yourself why because it, it's it's something that certainly you can do yourself. However, if you are going to outsource it, don't be outsourcing it to somebody who isn't speaking in your voice uh. or isn't, you know, uh, representing you in the way that you want to be represented. And, of course um, – Alison has, fant- has her fantastic course, uh, How to Build Your Author Platform, because she has certainly done hers, built hers so well that her books are flying off the shelves and they're out of stock <laughs> in so many places. <laughs> so if you want, well I've
1: succeeded.
0: <laughs> exactly. So if you want to find out more about Alison's course, which will give you a blueprint on exactly what you need to do in order to build your author platform, then go to writercenter.com.au slash platform. That's writercenter.com.au slash platform. All right, let's move on to – aha, this is an interesting um, post that I found on – I think you found actually on The Right Life called Mm -hmm. I Quit Freelance Writing for a 9 to 5. Here's why it didn't work for me. So basically, it's um, written by someone called Danielle Corcioni and she talks about the fact that she started freelancing part-time because she was working in a full-time job and then freelancing part-time but then she started earning really good money um, from her freelancing so she decided to freelance full-time and that all worked out quite well but then she went back to a proper nine-to-five job. Now, here's the thing, I think, because we, we, you and I, we actually started off in in the writing world but in full-time jobs, right? Yes, we did. And then we went freelance. Yes, within. And this spurred an idea that I wanted to plant the seed to some people. Um, I'm not suggesting that if you freelance, you go full time. But what I am suggesting, because I think, bo- I think I speak on behalf of both Alison and I when I say that we learnt some incredibly good fundamentals working in a large organisation, we and or in an organisation that was steeped in the world of writing and publishing, so I'm not. I, I, I'm you know we were surrounded by writers and editors, and I'm not talking about the one man operation that produces one little magazine or newsletter. We worked for a big organisation, and with that comes. Um, a lot of best practices that they mm. have learned over the years. So if we were very fortunate that, that, that those best practices were grounded in us. And then I went you know, freelancing um, and then I did do go back maybe like two days a week in some cases in some large organizations. It was always great to get that hit of that best practice because sometimes when you're freelancing by yourself, you don't really know whether what you're doing is best practice or not. So, one of the seeds I wanted to plant with some freelancers out there was if you can, you don't necessarily have to go to a full-time job, but maybe see if you can dip your toe in the water for a year or so um, for a two or three-day-a-week job in a large organization where you are surrounded by writers and editors because you will learn so much from just being in that environment. What Mm. do you think, Al?
1: I totally agree. So I, because I worked full time uh, for ages and then when I started sort of freelancing as well, I was actually working full time and freelancing for quite a while. Then yeah. I went back to three days a week in the office and freelancing two days a week. And I did that for years. Um, and the reason I did it was because it allowed me to build my freelance business, you know, in a really meaningful way while I was still, as you say, you know, immersed in the world of of writing all the time and, you know, having colleagues and seeing how things worked and sort of, it's just that day-to-day networking that you get just from being in an office with people who then move on to other magazines and go, oh, Al does freelancing as well. Maybe I'll get her to do this. Um, There's so much to be said for actually, you know, as you say, you know, seeing how things actually work. Because I think Mm. when you're out, when you work as as a freelancer, you get this idea that that editors are ignoring you or they're, you know, they're all in there stealing your ideas or they're, you know, doing various things when in actual fact what they are is incredibly busy, (laughs) incredibly busy Um, and sort of like trying to fit in 50,000 different things all the time. But yeah, as you say, and you see how other freelancers work, as well so if you're yep. in an office you get to experience how other freelancers work and you you start to also understand things you will never do as a freelancer mm. things you will never do you will never be that freelancer who is notorious for being 10 days late with copy, you know, and things like that because at the end of the day, that freelancer will be tolerated for a very short period of time if they're extremely, 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 extremely good Um, and even then if it's a consistent thing, they just get dumped and you get dumped for not being reliable. Like it's it's kind of one of the number one things that will actually – Get you, you know, taken off of, off the books, really, isn't it? Like not yes. not fulfilling deadlines, not doing, and to a reasonable level, obviously.
0: Yes, absolutely. But, yeah, it just made me think that this week. It's something that I don't probably encourage enough um, uh, just because I don't think of it. (laughs) But it's it's something that's so valuable, just that little touch point being surrounded by those people on a regular basis. Just try it for six months to a year. You'll be surprised at how much you will learn and Mm. and then take away into your own freelance life. All right. Let us move on to our competition this week. Oh, this is a cool one. This is um, thanks to transmission films, we have 10 double passes to Final Portrait, which is the oh. movie starring Jeffrey Rush and Alberto Giacometti. In 1964, while on a short trip to Paris, the American writer and art lover James Lord who is played by Army Hammer, who of course played the Winklevoss twins in mm. The Social Network, is asked by his friend, the world-renowned artist Alberto Giacometti, which is Geoffrey Rush, to sit for a portrait. Oh, this is like combining my two passions at the moment, writing and painting. This is so cool. I'm hanging it's out It's the to perfect
1: go. Valerie film.
0: Right. I think so, mm. and I love Jeffrey Rush. Uh, okay, so if you want to win um, tickets, there's 10 double passes to, to be won. Go to au slash win, and the competition closes the 25th of September. So go to au slash win. All right, here's something a bit different, Al.
1: Okay, good. I love a bit different.
0: Okay. Who inspired the word? Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Oh, Yeah, is wait a minute. Is this the word of the week? This is a variation of the word of the week, yes. Oh, variation.
1: Yes, yes. Is that allowed? Yes. Will, the, will the Word of the Week fans <laughs> cope with a variation? Because, you know, they are quite fiery, those Word of the I Week know.
0: fans. Normal Word of the Week will return next week. Okay. But I just thought this was kind of cute. Right. So who inspired the word sideburns, as in, you know, the hair on the next to the your ears? <laughs>
1: <laughs> just had a moment there. I've just had a visual. Um, I have no idea.
0: Okay, well this I didn't know this, but a general who served in the Civil War in America, his name was Ambrose Burnside, and his facial hair on the side of his ears was so long that they met, you know, on his face via his mustache.
1: Oh, there's and, a look.
0: <laughs> yes, beautiful, beautiful, so sexy. So, <laughs> this style of facial hair was then called the Burnside because his name was Ambrose Burnside. But at some point in life, the word was flipped around and became sideburns, which kind of makes sense because they're on the side of your face.
1: Mm, so there you but go. Why are they burn burns? Sides? i never yeah, thought about why sideburns.
0: they're burns. That's yes, hilarious. <laughs> exactly, because it was burnside.
1: There you go. Do we have a yeah. photo of, of Mr. Burnside oh, with his or m- meeting in the middle? That would be quite know. hilarious. I'll, Let's see if we can do research.
0: one more. All right, I will research. Shall we move on to our writer in residence this week?
1: And who might that be, Valerie?
0: Well, someone you and I know know well, Tristan Mm -hmm. Banks, who is, of course, a fabulous author who has written um, many, 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 many books. Uh, I first met Tristan in the hallway – of 140 William Street in
1: Sydney. Wow.
0: When I was working in magazines and he was starting to get into the world of writing, from vague recollection, I think, I don't know why, I think this, I don't even know if it's accurate or whether my memory is playing tricks on me, for some reason I'm I'm remembering that it, the article had something to do with him parachuting out of a plane. I could be completely making that up. <laughs> Um, right, <laughs> But anyway, at the time, we were both very young because uh, it was literally decades ago. He's then gone on to become a very successful author and his latest book is, is a great read and it's called The Fall. Let's have a chat to Tristan Banks. Thanks so much for joining us, Tristan.
2: No problem. Thanks for having me.
0: I have in my book – not in my book. I have in my hand your book, The Fall. Now, for any listeners who haven't read the book yet, can you tell us what it's about?
2: It's about a kid who's 12 going on 13 who witnesses a crime through the rear window of his father's apartment one night and the perpetrator of that crime knows that he's the sole witness and comes after him.
0: And – I I think it's, I love it. It is a page turner. You are hooked in from page one. Now, I am a woman in her 40s, far cry from being a teenager boy, and yet I was in this boy's shoes. I think this is an excellent book, Tristan. Um, Tell me, where did the idea come from?
2: It comes from something uh, – my favorite line from a book ever is – or the one that sticks in my mind is I was 12 going on 13 when I first saw a dead human being. And Ooh. it's from Stephen King's novella The Body that was in different seasons and it was turned into the movie Stand By Me. And mm. I think it's I think it's something like that is the opening line of the movie too. And I just loved that movie when I was a teenager. I loved, yeah. I loved the book. I have reread and reviewed those over the years. I still do now. I think it's just recently on um, Netflix, actually, Stand By Me, and it's just great storytelling. And I recently, or a few years ago, I was sort of thinking, um, you know, have I ever seen a dead human being? And I thought, no, I don't think I have. And then I remembered when I did work experience with Channel 10 News when I was in high school. I was in year 10 or 11, and I got to follow a news cameraman around Sydney for a whole week. And we went to big sporting events, the Australian Open Golf, and we went to crime scenes, and it was like it was the greatest week of my life to that point. Mm -hmm. And um, we went to this crime scene in King's Cross, excuse me, where a, uh, a, a man had grabbed a woman's handbag, run off through a park, jumped over a fence at the back of the park to get away, and what he didn't realize was that the fence at the back of the park was actually on top of a multi-story car park built into <sighs> the hill. And he fell to what I think was his death. I don't know for sure, but I, that's my memory of it. And I can't find the story cause they've deleted all the tapes from that era. Mm. Um, but, um, I think that's what happened. And I, I remember shooting we, – we shot from up on top of the, the park looking down at – you know, there were police and there were ambulance people and there were forensics and things. And then we went down and we were shooting this piece to camera with Harry Potter who mm-hmm. is the – that was the Channel 10 crime reporter. And when I tell mm-hmm. this story, kids are, kids are fascinated by the fact that his name was Harry <laughs> Potter um, and he was invented before Harry Potter was invented. Yes. And I just <laughs> wondered – but So the big question for me was what would it be like if your parent was a crime reporter and you got to go to scenes like this all the time and you as a kid got, you know, the insight into crime scenes that, you know, most kids would not. And, uh, and that sort of started me thinking about, um, you know, a kid that was in that situation whose father was a crime reporter.
0: Wow. So that's really interesting. That now you've told us kind of like the genesis of how of this idea and how it started. I'm curious to know whether you thought about everything that you just said then in a matter of seconds or a matter of months.
2: <laughs> years, years. It took me, you know, it was actually five years from my um, zero draft or my, you know, just exploratory draft right through to uh, the publication. So – I initially I wrote a draft that was set in Sydney. It was about a kid who was on work experience with Channel 10 News and followed this news um, uh, person around the camera operator. So it was very autobiographical. And then I went traveling with my family for about six months to Europe and I saw Rear Window again on the plane, the Alfred Hitchcock Mm. movie. And I thought, well, it feels quite diluted the story at the moment where he's traveling all over the city. And I thought, how can I contain it? And I thought, well, maybe what if he was staying in his father's apartment and he saw this crime through the rear window and uh and perhaps he's never met his father before, you know, maybe his parents grew um broke up before he was born and his his mother has never wanted uh, thinks his dad's irresponsible, never wanted him to meet his dad. Um but then finally he's had he's had an operation his mum has to has to uh, work, and finally she's sort of given in, and she'll let him go and stay with his dad for a week. And that's when he witnesses this this crime of someone uh, pushed, actually, uh, from or, or or you know, uh, sent over the over the balcony of the of a sixth floor apartment
0: mm, in the middle of the night. Yes. Um, so you get into it's from the point of view of of this thirteen year old boy or soon to be thirteen year old boy, and and it's written in first person. So you really do in – the reader is really very much in this teenage boy's world. How do you – what did you need to do to get into the mind of a teenage boy?
2: Part of it was that I gave him an operation that I had when I was 12 going on 13. Um, oh. I My left leg was about uh, four or five centimetres shorter than my right and so I I was sort of slightly, you know, slanted, tilted to one side kind of thing. And so I had an operation where I had six metal staples put into my right knee in order to mm. slow down the growth of my right leg so that my left leg could catch up. And I thought, I'm going to give Sam Garner, this kid, that operation. And mm. that'll help me to get into what it felt like. Uh, it also gives a reason why he's gone to stay with his dad. But it'll yeah. it'll help him feel like me. And I also sometimes in my early drafts, my zero drafts or exploratory drafts, I'll call the character Tristan as well in order to right. uh, in order to feel as though uh, as though they are me in some way.
0: That <laughs> is fascinating that you gave him that same operation to get into <laughs> well your mind as a thirteen year old, I guess. Yeah. Wow! So yeah. th- there's lots of little details in this, and I'm not giving anything away. Like um, uh, the reference to his mother getting him to take magnesium, which I had to laugh out loud because everyone these days tells me to take magnesium, <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, really,
0: as the you know solution <laughs> to all ills. And yeah. you know, just little things like 85% cacao in the dark cho- in the chocolate, and there's just little things that. That, that you add to the story that um, that seemed to me the result of just incredibly astute observation from your part not not I mean just about human behavior and about things that humans and do and and, and things that we experience. Do you consciously, well first of all, do you agree that it comes from observation and if so, do you consciously make yourself do that and write stuff down that you observe or is it just something that comes naturally to you <laughs> um,
2: I don't te- I do tend to in the morning I'll wake up and I'll do morning pages, which is a sort mm. of lag from you know having read the artist's Way twenty years ago or something and you know I'm a big fan of Natalie Goldberg's writing down the Bones as well. Um, I try to meditate um, whenever I can, which I guess is about getting down into where you are at that moment. So I guess all of those things help you to be an observer of what's around you. Um, but I also i am very conscious when I'm writing fiction that I'm trying to write, make it feel as real as I possibly can. And I think maybe because I'm not 12 going on 13 right now. I really try even harder to imbue it with details of the real world in order to make this fiction seem like fact.
0: Mm -mm. One of the things also about this book is the pacing seems to be spot on and as a reader I have that sense of I can't – I'm clutching my – sort of like the top of my chest at the moment to to give you an indication. I have this feeling right there and I'm almost short of breath as I just want to know what's happening in the next scene. Um, What do you do consciously or what do you do from a technical point of view to keep the reader feeling that?
2: Mm, I write a lot of drafts over a very long period of time and the first draft is Terrible pacing, and it's all over the place, and it's uh, it goes, it shoots off in a million different directions, and then the first draft, and the second, and the third, and the fourth, all of those drafts are very like the pacing is all out. I either deliver too much information right up front, and you know exactly what's going on, or I or I make it too cryptic, and no one knows what's going on. So mm-hmm. I, I I keep all those drafts to, to myself until I get to about a fifth or sixth draft. And uh, and they're drafts that sometimes you know will take between two and if I'm out in the world talking about the books and things sometimes they might take up to four months or five months or something to write the the fifty thousand word draft each each yeah. each time.
0: So what yeah. do you what are you physically doing in, like when you move from draft two to three or three to four or whatever? what is in your head of this is what i need to do or change what do you what's your barometer or benchmark whatever of what you need to take away or add
2: mm, i'll i'll print it out um or sometimes as i get further into the draft i will record voice record the entire draft. I'll just read it. I've put it aside for a month or two months or sometimes, you know, I'm just about to read a draft of something that I wrote six months ago. And so when you come back, you know, you're pretty fresh on it and you know exactly mm-hmm. what stinks and what bores you. And so you, you know, I just, when I when I first read it back, I'll just have a pencil in hand, but I won't write extensive notes. I'll just put a dot or a question mark or a smiley face or very, very, you know, um, and then I'll stop each quarter of the manuscript. So when I get to the sort of major turning points, you know, uh, inciting incident or uh, the midpoint or second act turning point, I will stop and I'll write notes on that, and I'll go uh, terrible, um, stinks, boring. Uh, but there is that one scene that's kind of interesting uh, in the bathroom, and then I'll I'll read the next quarter, and then I'll I'll just write notes at the end of that quarter, and you know again, oh gosh, what am I doing? This is the worst thing I've ever written. And then the third, and then at the end, and so I do that for three or four drafts, and it's only about the fourth draft that I'm actually writing possibly more positive notes than negative or starting Mm -hmm. to see that it could really be something.
0: Now is this process, this doing this every quarter uh, of your manuscript, is this process something that evolved over the years for you or something that you learnt somewhere?
2: I just think that if I save it all up till the end, um, I will have a bit of a messier idea of whether it works or not. And no one's ever going to read the whole book necessarily in one one sitting or, you know, not too many people are going to read an entire book in one sitting. And I also think, you know, if I think of it in kind of units of action, I can know that, wow, the opening, once I get into a few drafts, I'm like, oh, wow, the opening is really working well. It's only those second and third quarters that are really lagging and I'm falling, literally falling asleep when I'm reading it back. Um, and, then, and then you go, and then it comes home really strong. So at least I can isolate which parts of the manuscript aren't working and which are. Um, so, and I think it's a bit of a lag from having learnt to write fiction by writing screenplays as well so I still yes. sort of, I very much think in terms of first second and third acts and I mm. and I think in terms of a midpoint and I think in terms of those sort of waypoints without, within the story that are just going to give you something to hang on to something to you know and I, do, I don't think too much about that when I wrote write my first one two three drafts it's about mm. a third draft when I've just dived in and I'm I'm just r- Writing what comes to me and then I get to the third draft and it's still a mess and it's frustrating me and then I start to really think, okay, well, what's the structure of this thing? Why is it not working? And, and then I make a bit of an outline and, and, and start to sort of um, you know, consider that structure more.
0: So you do have a background with screenwriting and the acting world. So when you approach a book like this, The Fall, and you say that you, you know, you do have that tendency to go through to that to the to the three act structure, um do you, have you mapped out that three act structure and the various plot points before you write the bulk of it? Um not, so do you not know what's the- happening?
2: Not in the first and second, maybe third drafts. No, I tend to now – I used to. I used to map it very tightly and put step outlines up on the wall and, be, mm-hmm. and know exactly what every chapter was going to be. And then I'd think, well, if I just write to that, then I'm going to have a book. And that was, I guess, in the mm-hmm. first few books that I wrote because I wanted to know that I could get to the end. Um, whereas now I feel like I've written enough books to know I will get to the end. Um, yeah. I am gonna I am gonna follow through with this. I don't doubt myself as much. Well, I do. I doubt myself in many other ways. But um, <laughs> but in, ter- in terms of finishing the thing, I know I know I can, and I can sort of trust in my kind of structural understanding. On those first few act, uh, first few drafts, without being too explicit mm. about that, without tying myself down too early, because all those discoveries and all those dead ends lead to perhaps just one little interesting scene or interesting detail or a strange turn of phrase that you wouldn't have come up with had you been writing too specifically to an outline. Mm. That's the way it is for me, anyway.
0: So when you are writing and you're not off uh, on the promotional trail or visiting schools or doing your author talks. I know you're very active doing those sorts of things. But when you're in the depths of your writing, what's your typical day like?
2: I will try to wake up at six o'clock if I can and get half an hour to an hour's writing done of just first up, just morning pages, three pages flat out. Um, I might try to do some meditation, maybe five or ten we- minutes.
0: With the morning pages, can we just clarify, are you writing anything to do with your manuscript or are you just writing whatever's in your head?
2: At first it will be whatever's in my head and it might be the sounds of the birds or it might be um, that I'm really cold and tired and hungry and, you know, I wish I had a regular job with superannuation and (laughs) holiday pay and uh, (laughs) – Or, you know, why have I done this and I'm in the middle of this draft of this book and I know it's never going to turn out, and you know, or I may have woken up really positive and I'll be, Mm -hmm. wow, I'm so lucky to live this life and, you know, Mm -hmm. it'll vary. And then at some stage towards the middle or a couple of pages into the three pages that I write, I'll sort of say, so what is this story about? And I'll start telling myself the story. It's about this kid who witnesses this crime, but what is the crime and how does his dad have something to do with it? Um, and I'll start to sort of just free associate ideas. And by the end of that, that page or two of writing the actual story, it'll send me off into the manuscript and it may not be exactly where I finished yesterday. It may send me back or forward in the manuscript and I'll just start Mm -hmm. writing that scene or chapter that I have the most energy on at that time. I don't, I don't worry. I, I tend to write scenes out of order if that's what I'm excited about and that's what's flowing most easily.
0: And do you um, aim for uh, getting to certain milestones when you're writing a book, I must achieve by this chapter, by this time, or or anything like that?
2: Um, I used to, and I used to be much more structured and organized, and I was much more afraid of having a messy first draft, so the step outline made sure that my first draft was not atrocious, whereas Mm -hmm. now I tend to just dive in, and so you end up with a really messy first draft, but i can I can cope with a greater level of chaos in the manuscript now than I used to be able to um I can be okay with it, and so now I'm probably not you know I used to say right two thousand words a day gotta do yes. two thousand words a day be very strict on it
1: yes. now
2: I find that the books tend to especially the novels um that are a bit more layered and their um, mystery sort of stuff that I'm really trying to work out the pacing of. Um, yes. They tend to they tend to want to be written more at like a thousand words a day rather than
0: two. Interesting. Okay. Mm. So now I'm very jealous of you, Tristan. <laughs> Why? Because in your <laughs> Instagram feed, I because I you know you've you've got these photos of this thing which I assume is your writing studio, (laughs) which um, looks like it is straight out of a magazine, like Uh it really is. And Uh not only that because it's it's all really white and gorgeous and there's these windows that are just beautiful (laughs) that look out to, you know, the outside world. And in the foreground there is this absolutely gorgeous retro typewriter so I have so many questions on this, no, believe really? or not. Let's first talk about the typewriter. Uh, do you actually write on it or is it a prop for Instagram?
2: <laughs> I do actually write on it. And the reason I got it from Charlie Foxtrot, uh, the typewriter specialists in Australia, yes. I um, I got the typewriter because I get incredibly stale and bored opening up the laptop every day and staring into this bright screen that kind of, glows back at me and I'll do anything to avoid months and months of doing that. Um, so I'll I'll handwrite um parts of the manuscript uh, on you know notepaper and then I'll photograph it and then I'll airdrop those photographs to my computer and then I'll drop those photos of the the written pages into my um my growing manuscript. Um, and I'll also do that with typewritten pages. Some days I'll just want to bash it out and hear the ding and yeah. sometimes the <laughs> yeah. ribbon needs replacing or whatever and yes. you get the ink on your fingers and you're you know you're physically doing stuff and it feels so yeah. much better sometimes. so it then I'll does. photograph the typewritten pages and I will paste those into my manuscript <laughs> and uh and so the the actual the zero draft manuscript the you know my first Crack at it is a sort of uh, of the new one that I'm just about to read again after six months of being away from it is this yeah. Frankenstein's monster of laptop handwritten and typewritten pages and oh, uh, and I'll
0: wow.
2: yeah so I'll just print that out and then I'll I'll read the the Frankenstein thing because I mean half the stuff that I typewrite probably isn't going to end up in the manuscript anyway so there's no point transcribing it too early I don't think.
0: Yes, you're right. I love that. So, yeah, sometimes just the physicality of batching out the keys is strangely satisfying. Yeah. Now, I have to ask about the studio itself because I had this fantasy, right? Because <laughs> I watched this movie, I don't know if you've seen it, called Tamara Drew. Oh. And um, it's set somewhere in the English countryside, and one of the characters is a writer with a writer studio. Uh, in their you know sprawling country lawn or something and when I was living in the Yarra Valley on 14 acres I thought I want a studio just like Tamara Drew so I went down this path to attempt to do that it was a complete disaster (laughs) (laughs) why it was complete disaster we ended up burning it (laughs) how why oh because you think your manuscript was Frankenstein this Studio was Frankenstein. It was—I don't know—it was just the wrong, wrong, wrong idea from the start. Yeah. I started off with the shell of a studio. It had a nice idea in yeah. theory, um, which the local TAFE students had built and wanted to discard. I said, "I'll have it and I'll make it into my studio." <laughs> yeah. Well, that was just stupid because I can't hammer a nail or anything no. like that. Um, no. So it sat there for. Um, I don't know, a year or so. <laughs> yeah. It just as a as a facade or as a shell and never got made into anything. And eventually we realized that it was never going to be made into anything and it was really an eyesore on the property. So it, it, um, so you it burnt it into- to the ground. Mm. <laughs> oh,
2: <really? laughs> that's funny I heard, did you hear Kate DiCamillo the amazing children's author who mm-hmm. wrote Tale of Despero and uh, uh, Edward Tulane and lots of amazing stories mm. I, I think it's her that I heard on a podcast who actually physically burns her first draft manuscripts and, oh. and, then, and then just starts again on the second draft but just with that in the back of her mind but without mm. you know in a potbelly belly stove it's, it's gone up in smoke
0: oh, my goodness, I don't think I could do that. Yeah, I know. It's great, isn't it? I could burn a building but not my words. (laughs) (laughs) But tell me about the studio. Do you find now you have, you previously told me that um, you built it, well, or you got it built um, some months ago uh, because you didn't have one before. How has it changed the way you write or anything and why did you decide to build it? This is presumably in your backyard.
2: Yes, and I've always dreamed of having a writing space. I have had carved one out of the house every now and then, but then a child would grow larger and needed to (laughs) um, take it over. And I sort of discovered that actually, when I have a writing space, I don't use it, and I tend to go out and I, you know, I I walk around and I go to cafes and I go to libraries and I go, and I tend to get annoyed by by being in one place at one time. But I did do fifty blog interviews with lots of different writers from like john boyne who wrote the boy in the striped pajamas to toby riddle the amazing illustrator to lots of different people um on their writing studios and the, the association between um their writing space and the work they do and uh and i was so obsessed with it and so i sort of stole some ideas from all those you know all those different spaces um and then my wife is i i threw up my hands and said look it's never going to get built if I have anything to do with it. And so my wife <laughs> is an amazing designer and she takes a lot of the shots that appear on my Instagram. The, the best mm. shots are, are hers. Mm. And uh, she um, she did have the sort of stick-to-itiveness to um, design it and to work with the builder and to work with the many tradespeople. And she's very – whereas I would have sort of said, oh, yeah, no, nah, whatever you want to do. And, yeah, don't worry about that. And, no, that will be okay <laughs> just to make it easy she was happy to sort of work through challenges and, and make it the way she wanted it. And so mm. we ended up with this amazing space with a loft and all this light. Wow. And these old windows that are sort of, um, from a, um, from a sort of recycling place. And then wow. I don't know, it's a really, and it's been quite life changing, um, in terms of just our life as a family. But, um, in terms of writing, it's such a nice place to be in early in the morning. Um, yes. but I still, to tell you the truth, I still don't write in it all the time, and quite often I'm just as likely to be found at the dining table or out in a cafe or sitting in a hotel or motel somewhere in a place that I'm speaking. So I really I I use it as a writing space, but I'm not I'm not um, locking myself in there because I just get bored. I just get bored. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, this is the reason I'm very jealous. But let's move on to. We mentioned that you are often doing author talks, schools, you know, um, appearances. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about that. When, Firstly, why do you do them? Secondly, what kinds of things do you do most of? Are are they school visits or do you do general author talks at libraries and festivals and that sort of thing? Maybe you can tell us like the split or the proportion. Um, And about what proportion of the year do you do that?
2: Okay, I do probably um, between three and four months of the year I am speaking um, and I spend a write for about seven to eight months of the year, and I take a break for about a month of the year um, and I've worked out this over you know several years of uh, you know trying and doing too much speaking and not enjoying it and then doing too little speaking and thinking I could have done a bit more, and then finally sort of getting a mix that seems to work for me. And so I um, I do quite a lot of school visits. I probably, I probably do between 90 and 100 days of speaking in the year, which I know sounds like wow. a lot. Idiots. I know it is, it is a lot. <laughs> but you know what? Yeah, there's no point writing a book and then nobody knowing it exists. And even though um, we have really – like I'm with Penguin Random House and their publicity team are fantastic and amazing and they do heaps of work and they get you out there in – Lots of publications and TV bits and radio bits. But I just mm. feel like everything's so fragmented that the number of people that will see that that newspaper bit or the magazine bit or the radio mm. bit or whatever is so, is so small that um, it really helps to go directly to your readers and tell them about the story and try to bring it to life in fun ways using video and images and music and maps and all that sort of stuff. Um, mm. It also helps – as a as a author for kids and teenagers to be constantly having a conversation with them about and trying stuff out. Like oh, the first chapter of the fall, I was up in a school on the Sunshine Coast. It was Friday afternoon at about 2 o'clock and I had a group of year nines, about 150 year nine kids. And I was like, oh, no, it's going to be disaster and they're going to riot and what am I going to do? <laughs> and out of desperation I thought, oh, well, I've got that chapter that – um, that I'm writing for that book, and i'm gonna I'm gonna read that and and I sort of thought it could go either very badly, but it actually they sat there and listened to this story, and they were totally kind of leaned in and it was mm. the reading of that first chapter that actually gave me confidence in the rest of the book. I thought, all oh, right, wow. okay, if I can capture that that notoriously difficult group, um That's... then perhaps. You know, perhaps I'm onto something, and I should should dig in and 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 keep on writing this book. So okay. it's, a, it's a useful thing.
0: <clears throat> so you decided to read the first chapter of the four for that one. Do you normally just uh, d- uh, tailor some kind of bespoke thing to each um, visit, or do you have a a, a a set presentation that you you would use? How does that all work? Like, what do you actually? think or map out when somebody says, hey, can you come and talk to you?
2: Well, I try to change the talk every year based on you know a new book coming out. So I, mm. I don't want it to be that people who have seen me speak before go, oh yeah, I've heard him speak four years ago and it was exactly the same thing. Yeah. Um, with, it, with every book, each book has a different process and you learn new things and you gather together different images and I create a, a soundtrack for every book that I listen to over and over again as I write. So I tend to... Um, play a bit of that when I when I speak so all of those things change with each book so one thing is that I for each book I develop new new material and new anecdotes and things Um, and it takes a while it's really hard I find it very difficult to develop a talk in a vacuum kind of thing when you're not Mm. in front of people you're just sitting in a room going okay um, what can I talk about? You know, I, I find it very <laughs> difficult. Um, but I, but I do. I develop it, for, and so not each talk will have a bespoke thing, but I'll have a keynote that I that I generally use um, for each talk. But then this morning, for instance, I spoke to kin- a group of 150 kindergarten to year six kids in one room all at once for an hour. Wow! Um, which usually like speak-
0: live
1: –
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh-huh. usually I'm speaking to sort of say year five to year eight kids, which is sort of right in the core for you know all of my books. I can talk about yes. all of my books in that in that um, for that age group. But because you've got kindergarten kids there and they're wriggly and they'll ask you random questions about whether you've got a pet guinea pig and stuff, <laughs> um, which is fun, you know, because they make they keep it alive there are certain things I went, I tended to veer towards the younger books, which are the, my life series of short Mm -hmm. stories that Gus Gordon illustrates. So I know that that'll work for, you know, five to 12 year olds across the various ages. And so I'm telling anecdotes, I'm pulling out every funny thing that, um, that I know kind of gets an audience. I'm showing them pictures of illustrations. I'm showing them pictures of when I was a kid and embarrassing things that I did. Um, And, you know, and I know that – but then if I gave a talk to that year nine group, you know, directly afterwards, it would be a much different – it would be a much different talk. You know, I'd I'd lean towards the fall and I would do a reading of the opening chapter of the fall, which I would never do for kindergarten kids because it's a bit too scary for them
0: but let's take those two examples I just like I'm interested to do this because you're quite the master at the author talk because you've done yeah. more than anyone I know <laughs> um, so let's take those two examples kindergarten and year nine with the kindergarten do you kind of have a a storage spot in your brain of different story stories you can pull out and have an hour's worth for younger people, and uh, or, or and do you decide that before you even get there, or do you just read the room and wing it?
2: Um, I re- I read the room, but I know in my presentation. I have material that'll skew younger and material that'll skew skew older. So I'll either begin at the beginning, which is the youngest stuff, or right. I'll begin, or I'll or I'll cue it to begin in the middle, where I have four or five slides chosen from the younger material, and then I go straight into something like The Fall and Two Wolves, my other book for sort of yes. you know ten year olds and up. Um, So, yeah, it's a bit like that. I just know that there is older and younger stuff and I know I can get an hour out of the younger stuff and I know I can get an hour of the older stuff and I, I just do a mix. So, it's partly winging it but within the world of things that I have tried before and that I know work.
0: And typically, are you talking about your journey or your characters in the books or the writing process? As in for Um, them, the writing, you know, giving them tips on a writing process? A
2: a bit of all of that, but I try not to be too didactic. Um, I want to give them – most of all, I want to give them a fun time around books. I want them to go – to be coming in going, oh, this author – I've never seen an author talk before or I hate reading or whatever because um, you got to – I guess you assume that and then it's a real bonus if the kids are book freaks and they love reading and they're really happy to have you there. But for, for the skeptical kids, I want them to come in and go uh, – and then go, oh. Actually, that was really fun. He just told us a whole bunch of stories. He told us what he was like as a kid. He read a story, like bits out of his book that were fun or interesting. He showed us um, some video bits that he'd shot that seemed interesting as well. And then at the very end, he said, these are my top five writing tips. And they mm. sort of connected the dots between a bunch of the other things that he'd Mentioned, and I think the teachers like that bit at the end that you sort of wrap it up by saying, "Hey, I've showed you how I use images, how I use video, how I get outside to write, how mm-hmm. I um, how I rewrite and rewrite." I'll show I'll show the my sort of um, a, a screen capture of all my drafts of the book, a list of them. To you know, I'll say this may be devastating to some viewers because <laughs> I know you know, and who here loves rewriting, and you know, only two kids qu- <laughs> and who hates it, and they all put up their hands, and I'll say, well, mm-hmm. just so you know, we get told to rewrite all the time too. It <laughs> Doesn't just come out perfectly. So I'll, I'll slip in educational bits, but I try not to be boring about it because my job is to give them fun time around books and not to just be teacherly.
0: Sure, sure. So what's next for you? What are you working on now? What's the next book we can expect?
2: My next book is I'm writing uh, the next book in the My Life series. This is the sixth mm. book in the series and they're 25,000-word books of short stories um, illustrated and they're fun and they're really they're they're based on things that happened to me when I was a kid but then I exaggerate those stories and kind of you know fictionalize them and uh, and they're really fun to write especially in between drafts of a novel it's great to just go and write something that its only purpose is to be entertaining and fast-paced mm. and and engaging so yeah. I'm writing writing I'm finishing off uh the last of those stories and getting them to my editor and that'll come out next year and in and then over the next 6 months I'm hoping to push from a zero draft of the of my next book which is about a lockdown in a school um, oh, wow. through to through to maybe by by say February I hope to have you know to have written maybe a first second third draft so I'll right. be at the point where I think that it's that I shouldn't that I should just give up and never write again and then not <laughs> and then the fourth draft hopefully I'll I'll bring it home it's pretty consistent i i say that sort of thing with kids but uh, but it really is consistent that it, that fourth draft is the is the time when the characters actually start to feel like you know they feel a bit more human and you know who they are
0: so it's worthwhile pushing through to the fourth draft yes yeah. <laughs> all right yeah. well that's that's you know can't wait for that to come out i'm sure it's going to be awesome in the same way and sh- and as well as the my life book but um, the fall is is fantastic everyone should go read it it's um it's it's not just for young boys or girls for that matter i i was riveted i thought it was really really well written So congratulations on the book and thank you so much for your time today, Tristan.
2: Thank you. Thank you for being so kind.
0: This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you'd like to write fiction for kids and teens, our five-week online course, Become a Children's Author, will help you get there faster. Find your voice, create characters, dialogue and plots to fit your age group and write compelling stories that young readers will love, all in a couple of hours a week. You'll also enjoy the convenience of learning from anywhere and get your very own tutor providing personal feedback on your writing. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash children's author. That's writerscentre.com.au slash children's author. There you go, Tristan Banks.
1: Oh, how fantastic. I, and, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, because we spoke to Tristan about 175 episodes ago um, <laughs> and it's it, which is, you know, funny that we can even talk about that many. Yes. But um, it's interesting, isn't it, that, you know, his uh, his writing style has changed a little bit over that time, but I love the idea of the Frankenstein first draft of, you know, yes. yeah, the bits and pieces from all over the place. I think it's terrific.
0: Yeah, definitely. So we're almost at the end of this week's episode. What have you got in the coming week?
1: Uh, Well, I am doing a whole lot more promo for the Book of Secrets. Um, I've got a lot of um, things coming up in the next couple of weeks, so keep an eye out for those. And I am, I don't know, maybe having a little bit of a sleep. That's a good idea, I think. I think a sleep would be a good thing at some point. What about you, Val? What have you got to this week?
0: This week, um, well, I'm about to go to a meetup in Sydney for the Freelance Writing Masterclass Program members and then I'm getting on a plane to Melbourne. I'll be running a four-day workshop on how to build your profile and mm-hmm. also uh, – and that's also that's for a bunch of non-fiction authors. So they've all written non-fiction books and it's a slightly different approach with, with, with those people uh, and then I will be doing a meet up in Melbourne with our uh, Freelance Writing Masterclass Program people. Um, so that should be fun. Wow. So I'm going to be a bit busy.
1: Yeah, you are going to be a bit busy, aren't you?
0: <laughs> <laughs> lots of talking happening. I voice lots doesn't of, Lots of
1: talking. Oh, All right. Well. Where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A double L I S O N T A I T. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A L T A I T. And you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? Uh, You'll find me
0: at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And, of course, make sure you join the podcast community. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and it's a great place to connect. There are so many people in there now and it's fantastic to see everyone chatting to each other. What Mm. a great – I don't know why we didn't think
1: of this earlier, Al. Because we were so busy thinking (laughs) of other things maybe. I don't know. I have no idea.
0: (laughs) But I'm so glad that we – have this podcast community so it's so good just seeing listeners connect with each other as well as being able to connect with them as well so i hope to see you in the facebook group in the meantime thanks for listening everyone and we look forward to chatting to you again next time bye Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscenter.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.